Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're glad you're here today. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of Acts and chapter number 21, Acts 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible, turn to page 110 in the back part, and you would be at Acts 21. You know, when we went to do the Weekend to Remember in Pittsburgh, for me, it was going back to my roots. You see, both of my parents are from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. In fact, when I was a boy... We would go every summer. I didn't live in Pittsburgh, but we traveled to Pittsburgh for family reunions. In fact, we have there in Waterford, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Pittsburgh, the Kinsey Family Museum. My mother's maiden name was Kinsey. And so I said, I'm back in my roots here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and look at everything again. And so we went to go see the, the family museum. And I have a picture here of me in front of the museum with my older cousin, Roger, who's one of the leading guides now uh, when the museum is open in the summer and could take people through the museum. Also have a picture of the main house. There's several houses that are part of the museum, but this is the main house. And we have been told in the past it's the only family museum in the entire country. I don't know if that's true or not. But I also have a picture of inside the house. And what they've done is they've got all these... Um, implements that came from the greater family that were used back in the 1800s. And you can go in the house and you can see tables being set and all the other tools that they used. And the same thing in the other houses that have other functions there. Um, but what's cool about it when you go on these th- stories, and somebody like my older cousin Roger is, is giving you a tour, he will tell you stories of our family's predecessors. And one of those predecessors of mine was my great-grandmother, my great-grandmother was named Laophia Kinsey, and my great-grandmother died when I was 12 years old. Never really got much of a chance to interact with her, but there's a story about Laophia. My great-grandmother was the main facilitator behind a group of people who decided that that community needed to start a church, and so she was the main facilitator behind seeing the Christian church in Waterford started, and so I went to see the modern-day expression of that church. I took a picture of the plaque that is on the side of the building. You'll notice it said that it was founded in November of 1900. My great-grandmother was 23 years old at the time and had two preschool kids in her house. And she had this vision for the ministry of the church in the community and helped to facilitate it happening. I have a picture of what the building looked like originally. It was a white sideboarded type of building. Um, In 1966, they had to move it because it was right next to the road. Now, when that church was built, guess what? The traffic was horse and buggy, and then it turned into cars, and so they moved it up a hill, and I have a picture of what that building looks like today. It's now been bricked on the outside. But it's just fascinating to look at some of the records of those who went before us, and there's always lessons to be learned from it. Now, today we are returning to our seeds study, which is our study of the book of Acts. And when we go back to the book of Acts, it's important that we remember that we're going back to our roots. We're looking at the founders of the church of Jesus Christ. 
And it's just fascinating to go back and look at what they experienced and then to learn some lessons from what they did and how they lived. And so what I want to do is encourage you today to lean into this message. It's a little bit of a different message because all we're really going to do is look at Paul's journey to Jerusalem in chapters 21 to 22. And you might go, ooh, you know, Paul journey to Jerusalem, you know, big deal. Well, there's a lot here and there's a lot for us to learn. Now, I've laid out an outline of this section. Uh, We have Paul on the way to Jerusalem in chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. We have his arrival at Jerusalem in verses 17 to 22. We have an agreement that he makes in Jerusalem for unity among the church in verses 23 to 26. We have him accosted in Jerusalem in verses 27 to 40. We have him addressing the Jews in Jerusalem in the first 21 verses of chapter 22. And then we have a dramatic aftermath that occurs in verses 22 to 30. So again, we're leaning in, we're watching, we are learning lessons. So let's look for some lessons that we can find in these passages and in these chapters that we have before us. So first of all, Paul on his way to Jerusalem in the first 16 verses. Now, it's important that we understand what goes on before he journeys to Jerusalem. Paul had just finished the third of his three missionary journeys. And on those missionary journeys, the gospel of Jesus Christ was being spread primarily among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish population of the Roman Empire. Now, he also shared the gospel with those who were Jews in the synagogues, but primarily the message was going out to the Gentiles. And 10 or 15 years before Acts 21... In the city of Antioch, one of the New Testament prophets by the name of Agabus had predicted that there would be a famine in the land of Israel, in the land around Jerusalem. That's in chapter 11 and verse 28. That was 10 to 15 years before. Now what Paul and his crew, his spiritual crew who traveled with him were doing as they would go around in this third missionary journey to these various Gentile churches is he was collecting money so that there would be financial relief for those who are suffering in Judea. For example, in Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, Paul said this. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased, the churches in those areas, to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So again, he'd been out in Macedonia and Achaia. You see those areas there on the map. He was now coming to Jerusalem, and I think he had two agendas. One was he was coming with financial assistance, but secondly, he had in mind that he wanted to help build unity because you had the Jewish wing of the church and you had the Gentile wing of the church, and there was a danger of there being two wings. And so as he comes to Jerusalem, he wants to help build the unity between those two groups. Now, in chapter 21, verse 3, he comes, it says, to a city by the name of Tyre. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 4 as he gets to Tyre. It says there that he looked up the disciples. And by the way, there's a lot of plural pronouns used here, we and our, by Luke, because Luke was along on the trip. First thing they do when they get to Tyre is they look up the disciples. Now, this raises a question. Where did these disciples in Tyre come from? 
because Paul had never been to Tyre. Well, likely, it all traces back to earlier in the book of Acts to the death of Stephen. Remember when Stephen was stoned? And remember how Stephen was a great leader. He was a promising leader, an emerging leader. He had tremendous potential. But he is executed by stoning by the Jews. And out of the death of Stephen, you might remember this, the believers begin to scatter out of Jerusalem, out into the area of Samaria, which ultimately leads to the setup for the conversion of the apostle Paul, which ultimately leads to the setup for the gospel going to the Gentiles, which ultimately then led to the founding of the church at Tyre as the message of the gospel was passed from person to person. Now, I go into all of that because this is a great reminder for us. Just try to take a snapshot of this emerging young leader, Stephen, being killed under a pile of rocks. And it's a reminder that our perspective is not God's perspective. And God's perspective is not our perspective. And his way is higher than our way. And the truth of the matter is, we see it right here in our predecessors in the book of Acts. In God's love and God's providence, he chooses to use pressure. He chooses to use problems. He will even choose to use tragedy to further his kingdom. And we can learn that from our predecessors and from our roots. We need to remember that. That yes, even in our life today, God may use pressure and he may use problems. He may even use tragedy to further his kingdom. We need to remember that and we need to embrace that by faith. Well, we'll look at verse 5. He says there, uh, and, and they're really only there for a week. He says, when our days were ended, we left and we started on our journey while everyone there entire with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said for farewell to one another. Now, what we see in that verse is something that has been true throughout the centuries with followers in Jesus Christ. And that is, when you're a follower of Jesus and you meet somebody else from another place, there's a bond that exists, right? And again, they were only together for seven days. And look at the depth of the emotion and the connection that they had. And so here's what happens. When we are a believer in Jesus Christ, we inherit a large spiritual family. And, and, you know, we went to Pittsburgh, and I met a group of people I hadn't met before. And we're only worked together for a weekend. But, you know, there's a little emotion when we get ready to leave because there's this instant connection because we're followers of Christ. You know, the same thing happens uh, when you go to a place like Latvia. I can go to Latvia and I can meet people and minister with them and I hang around with them and there's this sense of connection that happens because we know Jesus and we follow him. And it's important just to remember all of that. Uh, And let me just ask you this question because I think relationally we tend to get into ruts. When was the last time you developed a new relationship? You know, or do we have our our individual friends and that's all we ever talk to? You know, when's the last time you prayed with a new brother in Christ or a new sister in Christ that you got to know? Short period of time, a lot of connection. By the way, this is why, this is why being attached to a church family is so important for followers of Jesus. 
And I don't know where all of us are coming from. Maybe you're not attached to a church family. And I would encourage you to say that it's important that you do become attached to a church family. You know, the church is really an outpost of the kingdom of God. And we live in a harsh world. And we need that connection. Uh, the church is really a colony of heaven right here on earth. And so it's important that we get connected. And if you aren't, get connected, I would say. Here at Wywood, great place. But if not here, somewhere, it's so important. We learn that from our predecessors. Now, in verse 8, they come to another town by the name of Caesarea. And I want you to notice what happens there. Verse 10, he said, we were staying there for some days. And a prophet named Agabus, remember, he came earlier in the book of Acts, who gave the, the prophecy of the famine that would come. He came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And notice Luke says, when we heard this, we, as well as all these local residents, the believers that they had met there in Caesarea, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul said to them, what are you doing? All this weeping, it's breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, to be taken prisoner, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, Luke says, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now, what we see Agabus doing here where he takes the belt and there's the binding of the hands and the feet, he's using a very common pattern out of the Old Testament with the prophets where they would do something dramatic to show some symbolism which would underscore the prediction that was being made. Let me just give you some illustrations and you can look them up uh, later. For example, in 1 Kings 11, verses 29 to 31, we have a prophet there by the name of Ahijah. And Ahijah comes face to face with Jeroboam, who is one of Solomon's sons. And Ahijah is wearing a brand new cloak. I don't know where he got it, Macy's, Penny's, I don't know, but he picked up this new cloak. And he had this new cloak, and as soon as he sees Jeroboam, he whips off the cloak, and he just tears it into 12 pieces. And then he says to Jeroboam, take 10 of those 12. Now, if you're Jeroboam, you're thinking, what in the world's going on here? You know, Ahijah has a brand new cloak. Who takes his new cloak and tears it into pieces? And then he tells me to take 10 other pieces. What does he want me to do with these 10 pieces? I don't know what he wants me to do. Maybe he wants my wife to make a quilt. I don't know. What's going on here? Well, as you go back, you realize he was doing a little drama because since Solomon was half-hearted toward God, the prophecies of God says the nation was going to split into two and that 10 of the tribes were going to fall under the leadership of Jeroboam. So there's this drama and this symbolism being used to underscore the prediction. Let me give you another illustration of that. This one comes from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 20, verses 2 to 6. And if you go there, you'll find out that the Lord talks to Isaiah, and here's what he says to Isaiah. Get naked. That's what God says to him. Get naked and go shoeless. And what does Isaiah do? Isaiah gets naked and he goes shoeless. And it tells us there that he was that way for three years. Can you imagine? 
him walking around in the community naked and shoeless for three years. What was that all about? Well, you see, Israel had this tendency to want to be reliant on Egypt to protect her from the enemies. And God made a prophecy, and he says, Assyria is going to carry off Egypt. And when that happens, the young and the old of Egypt will be carried off barefoot with their buttocks uncovered. Yes, it actually says that in the Bible. This little drama was being used to underscore the prediction. Now, as I look at what happened to Isaiah, I can't tell you how frequently I have thanked God that he has not asked me to get naked and shoeless at all, let alone for three years. I'm glad for my sake, and believe me, I am glad for your sake, he has not asked me to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. I heard a few amens out there. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Now, now let your eyes go back to, to verse 11. Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Look it up at the end of verse 4, previous. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, I just want you to know that the critics of the Bible love to run to this chapter. They, they love to talk about verse 11, and also verse 4. They have a heyday here because they say, look at what the apostle Paul did. He totally disregarded the, the directions of the Lord. Paul deliberately disobeys God here. That's what the critics like to say. Now, here's the key question. Did the Holy Spirit tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem, which would have been a, a prohibition of that, or... Did the Holy Spirit tell him that if you go, you're going to be a prisoner in Jerusalem? That would be a warning. One is a prohibition, the other is a warning. Well, if you look at the evidence and check the evidence, I believe it strongly supports the latter that the Holy Spirit was saying, if you go there, you're going to become a prisoner. It was a warning. And let's just look at some of those things that are part of the evidence. Go back to verse 4 of the chapter. It says that they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Who is the they? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the believers telling him not to set foot in Jerusalem. In fact, in the New American Standard, it has a marginal reading, and it says that they, because of impressions made by the Holy Spirit, told him, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, was he just disregarding the counsel of God? No, not at all. In fact, in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, we see Paul being very sensitive to the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told him, don't go into Asia Minor. He didn't go. The Holy Spirit told him, don't go into Bithynia. He didn't go. Keep your finger here and turn over to chapter 19 for a moment and look at verse 21. We're just seeing, I think, the evidence points to the fact that the Spirit was giving him a warning, not a prohibition. Notice it says there that Paul purposed in his spirit, or in rather the spirit, it's literally the spirit in the original language, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
In other words, he believed the Spirit of God was telling him to go to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 20, verse 22. Chapter 20, verse 22. Paul says there, And now, behold, bound in literally the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And in other words, he does, I don't know all the details, except that, verse 23, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that I go to, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. That's the message I'm getting. But notice he says in verse 24, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself because this is the drive I have, that I would finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Of God. We're not going to see it this week, but later on in chapter 23 and verse 1, Paul says this as he's defending himself. He says, I have had a good conscience before God to this very day. This seems to be the Holy Spirit giving him a warning as he goes what's going to happen, not a prohibition from going. Now go back to chapter 21. And when we look at the unfolding of verses 11 to 14, it just seems to fit with that idea. He takes the belt, he bounds his own hands and feet, he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And notice it says in verse 12, and when we heard this, what is the this? That he was going to be bound, taken prisoner in Jerusalem. When we, as the followers of Jesus and the friends of Paul, heard this, we as well as the local residents began to beg him, don't go. And Paul says, well, guys, what are you doing? I mean, you're weeping and you're breaking my heart and all this stuff, but I believe God said I've got to go to Jerusalem. And I'm ready not only to be bound there, but even die there for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so finally, when they realized he wasn't going to be detoured from this, we fell silent, saying the will of the Lord be done. Now, we go through all of that, but there's a lesson there in all this for us. This is a reminder, what we see here about to happen to Paul, that nothing happens outside of God's will and control. And that is true. No matter what may happen in your life or what may happen in my life, nothing happens outside God's will and control. And and I don't know, this just gets to me every once in a while. I just see this thinking that goes on sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ. It's almost like there's a presupposition, and the presupposition is this, that suffering and adversity can never be God's will. The assumption seems to be that God wants me happy. He doesn't want me facing adversities. He doesn't want me to be in the midst of pain. He doesn't want me to have to be dealing with difficulty. And, and, you know, so now I'm experiencing those things and I'm not happy. Well, that can't be God's will because God's will is for me to be. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know, we pointed this out before in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. As Paul went back through the churches that he founded, he kept saying to the believers over and over together again and again, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be eras in God's plan for my life and your life, when there's going to be trouble, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be pain, we're going to experience that. There'll be eras of that in our spiritual life. Let me ask you the question, was God in total control of all that happened in Paul's life? And the 
and the answer to that is yes, well, then let's flip it around. God is also in total control of everything that happens in my life. You know, most of us are not going to be called to get naked publicly for three years. You know, most of us are not going to be manhandled by a mob, which is what Paul is about to have happen to him. Most of us are not going to be arrested for our faith or imprisoned for our faith or have to die for our faith. But we can learn from our roots and our predecessor. We can learn from Paul. What did Paul do? What did Paul do when he faced trouble? What did Paul do when he faced difficulty? What did Paul do when he faced adversity? What can we learn from that? Well, you know what Paul did? Paul kept walking with Jesus. That's what he did. You know what Paul did? Paul kept trusting Jesus. Even when there was trouble, even when there was difficulty, even when there was cancer, even when there was the death of someone we cared about. He kept walking with Jesus. He kept trusting in Jesus. He kept relying on the grace of Jesus as he had to face those situations. I just love the spirit of Paul in chapter 20, verse 24, when he says, this is what I'm committed to. I want to finish the course that God called me to run. And I don't know what may be going on in your life. You don't know everything going on in my life. But that's the, that's, that's the challenge we have, to finish the course that God has called us to run. The next thing we have happening is his arrival at Jerusalem in chapter 21, verses 17 to 22. Uh, look with me at verse 18. It says there, the, the, after he arrives, really the evening before, the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders of the church were present. And after he greeted them, Paul began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now, if you've been with us in this study, one of the things I keep emphasizing is that the book of Acts is a book of transition. You know, remember, we went years and years before there was even a Gentile in the brand new church that got birthed in Acts chapter 2. We have to be careful about how we build our theology based on the book of Acts because it's a book of transition. There are changes that happen. We see it again right here. It talks about he meets with the elders of the church there in verse 18. If you've been with us in the study, you'll know that if you went to Jerusalem in chapter 6, who did you meet with? You met with the 12 apostles. When there's a big confab in Acts chapter 15, who do you meet with? You meet there with the apostles and with the elders. Now we come to Acts chapter 21, and he has a meeting, and who's he meeting with? He's meeting with the elders. There's a transition that happens even in the book of Acts between the apostles and the elders being the key leaders. Now that brings us to this agreement for unity that Paul makes in verses 23 to 26. And I just want you to notice verse 21 because there was a problem. They got excited about everything that God had done, but he said to them, there's a problem though, Paul, that these new Jewish believers here in Jerusalem who'd come to faith in Christ, they have been told something about you, that you teach the Jews who live other places to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to their customs. You've been telling Jews elsewhere to abandon their heritage and their cultural customs. Now, that's what they have been told, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. But, of course, this was hearsay. 
This were, these were allegations. These were false accusations. Paul never did that. You, you know, Paul did battle to keep the Gentiles free from having to keep the law. But you trace his history. He never told Jewish believers, you need to abandon all your cultural practices. No, really, believing Jews were fulfilled Jews. They believed in their Messiah. And he never did that. In fact, when you look at the facts, for example, in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul has Timothy, who wasn't a Jew, circumcised because he wanted Timothy to have more of an open door to share the gospel. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, we see Paul there keeping a Jewish vow. He is still practicing in his own life the cultural practices of a Jew while also being a follower of Jesus. So this was a problem. There have been these lies spread around, and apparently it was pretty prominent. So then the question is, how do we solve that? You know, how how do you get everybody together and you just say, well, he never said that? So the church leaders come up with a suggestion to counter this untruth, and we see it in verse 23. We want you to do what we're recommending to you. We have four men here who are under a vow, probably poor guys because they don't have the money to pay for the sacrifices that needed to be done as a Jew under the vow. And they suggest to Paul that you take them and purify yourself along with them, verse 24. It'd be even great if you would pay their expenses because that would show how much you are supporting their cultural practices and that they, you would shave your heads and everyone's going to know there's nothing to all these rumors out there that have been spread about you and that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. So what happens? Verse 26, Paul takes the men and the next day and they purify himself and he pays for all their sacrifices, probably three animal sacrifices for each guy, plus some meal and drink sacrifices. And he does this as a demonstration that he's not anti-Jewish, telling Jews they can't do their cultural practices. Now, all that laid out for you, let me ask you a question. Was Paul obligated to do this? Was he obligated to do that? No, he wasn't. But Paul understood that making this accommodation could make for more effectiveness in Jerusalem for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might jot down 1 Corinthians 9.20 because there Paul says, as his practice was, when he went among people, he says, when I was among the Jews, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I could reach the Jews. When I was among the Gentiles, I became a little more in practice like the Gentiles because I wanted to reach the Gentiles. Now, one thing we can say about Paul is that Paul was very firm on the essentials, and Paul was flexible on the non-essentials. He was firm on the essentials. He was very firm that the gospel is faith in Christ alone and not adding in practices of the law. He was very firm about that, but he was very flexible about non-essential issues. Now, here's what's interesting. For individuals and churches, too often that gets reversed, where we become firm on the non-essentials and flexible on the essentials. You know, I've laid all this out for you, but do you realize how startling this is? It's startling. The great apostle of the New Testament submits himself to the leadership of the local church in Jerusalem? Now, let me say this. If Paul did that, what does that say 
about you and about me. You know, in Hebrews 13, 17, it says this to the believers, to the followers of Jesus in the local assembly. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to the Savior one day. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, literally with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. What Paul agrees to do here was a great gesture of unity and humility. And what he was making was a statement about the importance of unity and humility in the church. And and it it makes me think of Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. He wrote these verses very soon after this event took place. And he writes there, instructing us, where he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, show forbearance for one another in love, And here's what we're to be doing in the church, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, the truth is, among believers and followers of Christ, too often there can be conflict in the local assembly over the non-essentials. And you know what he's really saying to us? Conflict among believers over non-essentials is to be avoided. You know, sometimes, you know, there can be these little standards that get erected about how we are to dress or how we are to look or which school you're supposed to send your kids to if you're really being spiritual. And he's telling us that conflict among believers over non-essentials is to be avoided. In fact, in Romans 14, 19, Paul says this, pursue, chase after the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another in the body of Christ. In verses 27 to 40, we see him being accosted in Jerusalem. In verse 27, another group appears. They are the Jews, the unbelieving Jews from Asia. We've seen them previously in the book of Acts. And these people had gone after Paul before, these unbelieving Jews, and they're now in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they're right there in the assemblies around the temple where all these people were gathering. And so they, they cry out in verse 28, Men of Israel, come to the, our aid. This man, Paul, who's here in town, he preaches to all men everywhere against our people, the Jews, and against the law and against the temple. And he's even brought Greeks, Gentiles into the temple. He's defiled this holy place, which is what would happen if you brought a Gentile in. These are all outright lies. They concluded the last one because they had seen Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, a Gentile, in the city with Paul. And so they just said, well, that means he probably brought him into the temple. And so they stir up everybody with all of this stuff going on. And and notice what happens in verse 31. All these Jews who are gathered together for Pentecost were seeking to kill Paul. And then it says a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that Jerusalem was in total confusion. Now, now here's what we need to understand. When you are in the temple grounds, the way they had it, you had the temple grounds, and then you had the Fortress Antonia that was right adjacent to it. If you look at that picture, see where you see all those columns? That was just the gathering area in the temple area. That big monstrosity to the side of that was the Fortress Antonia. That's where the Roman soldiers were headquartered. And as everything's panicking, somebody runs and they tell the commander that it's just gone crazy down there. And so he breaks his way down there, brings some soldiers down there, and he he finds them beating Paul up. 
And so in verse 33, the commander comes and he takes hold of Paul and he orders him um, to be brought back towards the fortress and, and he's trying to find out what has this guy done? What has this guy done? And everyone, verse 34, shouting crazy things or shouting this or shouting that. He can't figure out the facts because it's so crazy. So he says, let's bring him over to the barracks. Let's talk to him in the barracks and find out what's happening. And notice, even while they're carrying him to Notice he was being carried, verse 35. They had to pick him up and get him out of there. The multitude is shouting, following them, taking Paul to the barracks. Away with him! Away with him! And then Paul is brought into the barracks, and then he speaks to the commander in Greek. That really shocked the commander. You speak Greek? Well, he says in verse 38, well, then you can't be this guy that he thought he was the Egyptian who some time ago had stirred up a revolt in Jerusalem and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Now, with a little historical background, there was apparently a guy who was Egyptian in background, and he put together this group of people, thousands of them, called the assassins, the Sakari. And the Sakari were very interesting dudes. Uh, they would tend to target the Romans, or they would target pro-Roman Jews, and what they would do is they would go into these crowds, like this time at Pentecost, and they would have their long robes, just like you'd see maybe in the Middle East today, and they would have a knife under their robe. And they would walk through the crowd, kind of, you know, butt up against someone, take their knife out, stab them in the back, put it quickly back on their robe, and then they were so tricky, they would go, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, I need help over here, someone's been stabbed. And this guy thinks that's who Paul most likely was. And Paul says to him in verse 39 at the end of it, he said, would you just allow me to speak to this crowd that just beat me up? And, you know, I think the commander must have been looking at him. You know, he's beaten up and he's bloodied. And he goes, you want to talk to those people? Are you kidding me? Which leads then to the addressing of the Jews in the first 21 verses of chapter 22. And I'm not going to go into this. You can read it later. But basically what he does is he gives his testimony here. He talks about the road to Damascus and how Jesus Christ came into his life. And he's really pointing out that it's not a defection from the Jewish faith for me. It's a divine intervention that happened. And then something very interesting happens in, in verse 16. He's relating the story of his testimony. And he talks about how Ananias came up to him. And, and Ananias said to him this, speaking of Paul, Why do you delay, Paul? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on Jesus' name. Now, I want to look at that verse for a moment. I want to make two observations about it. I don't know if you know it or not, but that verse is used by some people who want to say to us that baptism saves a person. This is one of their proof texts for that. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. See, it says it right there. That if without baptism, you can't be saved. Now, I, I can't go into a lot of detail here, but let me just say this. For those of you who love language, very pivotal to understand what's called antecedent participles in this verse. What does that really mean practically? It means this. The arising in the original language precedes the baptism. If you're going to get baptized, you have to arise. The calling on the name of Jesus precedes in the structure washing our sins away. You call upon the name of Jesus and you wash your sins away. This is not a verse that teaches that baptism saves you. Second thing I want to notice from this verse is that water baptism is normal for a Jesus follower. That's what Ananias was saying to, to Paul. You believed in Jesus now. 
what's to stop you from being baptized? Water baptism is normal for a Jesus follower. You know, the consistent thing in the book of Acts, it goes over and over. They believed and they were baptized. 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 You know what you don't see in the book of Acts? They believed, period. You know, it's interesting that an unbaptized believer in the Bible is a veritable anomaly. It's a total anomaly. There is no such thing at all. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for all of us? Well, it means that if, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, get baptized. That's what our predecessors did. And you saw some people at the beginning of our service doing that very thing. Take advantage of the privilege of making your testimony, and you can share your story and be baptized. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. Well, they listen to him in all of what he has to say in these verses until he comes to verse 21, and he says that Jesus told me, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, and everything goes off the track. That's the dramatic aftermath of verses 22 to 30. We're not going to look at it in detail, but just so you know what happens, they were listening to him. They go nuts. They say, away with such a fellow from the earth. Get him off the planet. He shouldn't be allowed to live. And they're crying out, and they're throwing all their clothes around, and they're throwing dust up into the air. And the commander ordered him to be brought deeply into the barracks at that point so that they could find out more of what's going on. And you can read through the rest of it, but eventually a decision is made, which we're going to look at next time, to put him before the Jewish assembly of the Sanhedrin. Now, as we're closing this morning here, I want to just point out a couple of things. Rejection happened to Jesus, right? Rejection happened to Paul. Why do we get surprised when we experience rejection? It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. And men and women, increasingly so, it's going to happen to us where we're going to have some rejection. You know, when maybe you're trying to share your faith at school and they say to you, just keep, keep your convictions to yourself. Or maybe we even get ridiculed because we're seeking to live a pure life and that doesn't seem to be the hot thing in the culture. We're going we're to see more and more rejection. The media uh, already is calling the Christians hypocrites, sometimes even calling us deviates. And, and rather there being a sin problem in the world, they would say we're the problem. So again, let's not be surprised when we experience some rejection. It happened to Jesus and it happened to Paul. Two very fast closing reflections I have this morning for us. What can we learn from all of this? Well, number one, we need to run the race with endurance. We need to be like Paul. We need to finish the course that God called us to run. And that means different things. And that means working our way through difficulty and adversity in our life. Remember, Hebrews 12.2 says, while we're running the race with endurance, keep our eyes on Jesus. We need our eyes to be there. And the second thing I think we can learn from all this is we need to let our life shine. That's really what Paul was doing. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they can see your good works, the way you're living your life, and they can ultimately glorify our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for this incredible tour we've been able to take back to our roots and learn from our predecessors. We just thank you that you know us, that you are our father, and that you're a good father no matter what we may experience, even adversity and difficulty and pain in life. And no matter what we may experience, we have confidence that we are never, ever alone. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.